0: Welcome everyone to Insight. I'm Tim and I'm joined by my colleagues uh, Charlie and Allie. How are you ladies this evening?
1: I'm good. Yeah, I'm great. Thanks.
0: Great. Excited. You're excited for another topic?
1: <laughs> That's right.
0: Yeah, yes. this is topic number three. Um, so we would like to thank all of you who've tuned in to the first two episodes. We hope you'll enjoy this one as well. As all well of our future episodes, we've got some interesting stories coming up. Um, So please, um, you know, continue to follow us and um, tune in. Today's story is uh, that of Chris McCandless. Chris was a young man who sought adventure, and at the age of um, 22, he traveled across the United States, uh, all across the United States, alone. And ended up uh, the story ended up uh, rather tragically as he perished in the Alaskan wilderness. So we're going to talk about his story. We'll discuss you know some of the reasons why we think uh, um, what motivated Chris to to take this journey. Uh, if this story sounds familiar to you, it was the subject of a bestseller by John Krakauer, and that book was entitled Into the Wild. It was released in uh, 1996, and it's, it's a pretty popular book today. I've read where it's um, part of uh, curriculums and some college courses and even in high school. So
2: Yeah, Allie and I both read it in preparation for that. I know you had read it already, Tim. I keep calling it Into the Woods because I have a theater kid, <laughs> and he listens to the Into the Woods soundtrack like 24-7. Yes. So I would look up, like, fact-checking some of the things in the book. So I'd type, Into the Woods, and then blah, 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 and nothing <laughs> would come up. It was so weird. <laughs> so if I accidentally say, Into the Woods, that's why. Just just a disclaimer. We'll forgive you.
0: <laughs> You'll be forgiven. Uh, in addition to being a best-selling book, it was also a movie directed by Sean Tin back in 2007, char- uh, starring... Emil Hirsch is that right? I'm sorry, I don't follow movies. Sounds, follow movies sounds right. a lot, but um, it it was basically uh, they they basically followed the book. Although you know, I, I always liked the books better, but that's another story.
1: I noticed there was some artistic license taken with the movies. A bit glamorised. Yeah, yeah,
0: they, yeah, they romanticised it a great deal. And, and to a certain extent, the book was criticized for doing the same thing. But we'll talk about that uh, as, we, as we go through this. So a little bit about Chris. Chris McCandless was born on February 12, 1968, in El Segunda, California, which is uh, just outside of Los Angeles. And he was, uh, his father was Walt McCandless. He was an aerospace engineer for NASA, so that's pretty impressive. He was like a rocket scientist. And his mother was Wilhelmina, or better known as Billy. She worked as a secretary at Walt's research facility. And they, he had a younger sister, uh, Corrine, uh, who became kind of his confidant. They were very close. And we'll talk, uh, we'll talk about their relationships, uh, because family relationships play, I think, a key part of this whole story. And uh, we'll get into that as we talk about uh, some of the things that may have motivated Chris to go on his journey that ended in such a tragic way. On the outside, this family looked to be a normal, middle-class family. But there were some, like most families, there were some family secrets.
2: There were some pretty big family secrets. <laughs> yes, yes,
0: they were. Bigger than normal. Yeah,
1: yeah bigger than normal.
0: Yeah, and one of them was that Walt McCandless, while living with Billy and starting a family with her, was also was already married, and he had uh, a wife who lived. I think it was. I think it was twenty minutes away. It's really close, yeah. And with his first wife, he had um, six children.
2: He had the six children, but his wife was pregnant with their fourth when he started his relationship with Billy. She had his fifth three months was it before chris was born with billy and then he had another child when chris was two with his first wife and, and then finally he stopped having children with his first wife good idea
0: then chris's sister was born shortly after that so
2: like about two years after that
0: yeah you have this you know this uh, really strange family dynamic here going on
2: there was really major overlap between the families yeah, the
0: overlap went on for about five years yeah, it went on quite a while. It, was, it wasn't like it was just a transition from, you know, uh, a relationship uh, ended and he started another one, or even it, even it was like, a uh, you know, a relationship that occurred toward the end of the marriage. This thing was going on for a while.
2: And Walt, Walt isn't the one who ended that marriage. His wife um, filed the restraining mm. order and took the kids and left. So I don't know how long Walt would have allowed this to continue.
1: Did Billy know about the other family? Because it didn't go into that. Was she aware of it at the time?
0: I don't know. But certainly she becomes aware later. But... uh... (laughs) I didn't
2: see anything, but assuming she was working with him, I think she had to have known.
0: I would guess so as well.
2: I actually kind of wonder if they just both knew. I don't know how he could have kept this a secret from them because they were having children at the same time.
0: And they live so close. Yeah. So, so you have this you know, strange family dynamic going on that may or may not play a role we'll discuss later on in um, what motivated Chris to go on this journey. But anyway, let's um, talk about Chris growing up. He was a smart young man. Uh, he loved to read. He especially loved to read books on travel. He, was, he, he loved authors like uh, Jack London. He loved sports. He tried many different sports. But he really took to cross-country running, uh, and he, he in high school, that's what he did. He excelled at it. He also loved the outdoors. Uh, according to some reports, the, the family spent a lot of time out um, taking trips and going, you know, camping, and um, Chris loved that. And he was a good student. He got A's throughout high school, with the exception of physics, which you know on the surface i can say oh i can understand that i didn't do that well in physics myself but um chris felt uh got an f and he felt it not because he couldn't you know grasp the concept but he refused to format his work in the way that his teacher wanted so he was somewhat rebellious there and being non uh, conformant to the standards that the teacher wanted and and I only mention that because the way he lived his life, you kind of get some clues along the way that he's going to be, you know, he's going to be nonconformist. And that is what many, you know, uh, for many people, that is the appeal of Chris. During high school, he became very interested in uh, racial oppression in South Africa. Uh, at the time, South Africa was uh, under the policy of apartheid. And uh, Chris became very interested in that. He saved money uh, by working at uh, various jobs when he was a young man and bought a car, a yellow Datsun, and this Datsun was very important to him. Uh, he went, uh, after graduating from high school, he took a long journey cross-country in this car. And he was gone for a long period of time. I think it went with uh, like six weeks without contacting his parents. And this was, I I guess, a trial run for what was to come.
2: His parents had requested that he contact them like every three days to check in. And he sort of did in the beginning, but, you know, he didn't want to give him an itinerary. He said Mm -hmm. that, you know, the adventure was going. Six weeks went by without hearing from him, so he would have been 18. I have a 17-year-old. I can't even imagine.
1: And Corinne Corinne did say in um, the Back to the Wild documentary that the family did, and um, Corinne said that Chris had this rebellious, independent, adventurous um, attitude towards things, and that if he could take the hardest route, he would, because he didn't want to miss anything. Um, You know, he enjoyed not knowing the destination, because then he could expect the unexpected. And I think this whole stage of his life is very, very telling for future events. I like that regardless of what has become between Chris and his family, I think he was just a slave to his destiny. Even if he had the perfect family life, I think he was always destined to do this.
0: I can relate a lot to to this for Chris. Uh, I travel a lot. I've always traveled a lot. I've probably worried my parents, you know, sick with my travel. Uh, so I can understand not wanting to have an itinerary and not wanting to be tied to it and not wanting to check in every day. And, you know, that was the, uh, you know, his his view was, you know, the point of the adventure is not that it's unplanned.
2: I really liked how Corrine put it when she said it wasn't a challenge to him unless it was really a challenge. Yeah. And so, like Ali said, he's a harder path to get there to really push himself.
0: And also, like Ali said, I think it's this is a preview of what was to come.
1: Troll run,
2: yeah. When he returned home from this, when he returned home from this trip, he had long hair. He was underweight, and he told his family that he got lost in the Mojave Desert and nearly died of dehydration. Now, how much of this is his storytelling or really what happened? You know, it just seems like he was okay with. Discomfort in his adventures I I take an air mattress when I go camping I'm just going to put that out there So (laughs) he liked his adventures A little bit more adventuresome And hard and a little bit more You know, uncomfortable
1: Yeah Uh,
0: The more challenging the better So uh, Chris was accepted uh, To Emory University In Atlanta, Georgia And he began college there In the fall of 1986 If you're not familiar, for those of you outside the United States, Emory is a very prestigious school. I mean, you don't waltz through Emory University. You know, he had good marks, and and he was able to get into school. But while he was away uh, in, in Atlanta, attending college in Atlanta, he began to distance himself from his parents, and as i said we'll we'll get into these the dynamics of these relationships which which we i think we all agree play the key role in into some of the reasons behind what chris did um, in his journeys but he uh, was very still very close to his sister and we'll talk about that as well Corrine, uh, he would write her now Corrine has come out with her own uh, you know, her own story, uh, her own um, story of, of Chris and their relationship. And it's not a story that is uh, necessarily in line with that of his parents. You know, we'll just say, you know, alleged, because we really don't know.
2: His parents have said it's a fictitious account. They deny everything.
0: Uh, he was still close. He was writing uh, his sister while he was way at college and basically telling her that he was, uh, you know, that they've had, you know, talking about their experiences growing up and what we're da- I'm dancing around here. There's allegations of abuse, not so much in terms of with the children. I don't know if you guys got that or not, but it was more in line with um, Chris's dad's abuse of his mom.
1: From what I read, it seemed to be mostly towards his wife's plural. Mm-hmm. But it seemed to have been escalating more towards the children later on, where he would be a bit more physical towards Chris and Corinne. But that wasn't until they got close to teenage age.
0: Yeah, so you had uh, this, uh, and again, this is according to uh, Chris's sister. Allegedly. (laughs) Yeah, allegedly. We'll, We'll preface all this by saying this is all, you know, alleged.
2: Well, in Corrine's defense, she does have letters from Chris that talk about this. Oh, that yes. he yes. had sent talking Absolutely. about their childhood. And all of Walt's half children, or all of Walt's other children, her half siblings that have spoken out have also said that they witnessed abuse between their dad and their stepmom and their dad and their mom. And then, of course, there's the restraining order against Walt from his first wife. Yeah, the
0: first wife cited actually cited it yeah. in legal documentation that, that there was some abuse going It's on. not
1: just Corinne, Corinne versus her parents. It's more than one person. Right.
2: Yeah, so there is some backup to what she's saying. Yes,
0: absolutely. I'm just, I'm just keeping us from getting sued. <laughs> um, so anyway, so... As Chris was growing into manhood and he was away at college, he began to distance himself from his parents. Uh, And, you know, according to his sister, Corrine, it was because of the abuse that they've uh, witnessed growing up. And he spent some time with his half-brothers and sisters. They would do some, you know, they would visit some in the summer. They would take vacations together. Um, So he got to know them, and he... He, There was also this, I think, uh, he, he could see that he here he had brothers and sisters, and uh, they were in Colorado at the time, uh, and um, they were living a totally different lifestyle than him and his sister because Walt had started his own consulting firm, and they were doing very well financially, but uh, uh, Walt and his first wife, uh, Walt was very reluctant to pay any alimony or child support. So they were struggling there in Colorado. And and Chris, I guess, you know, saw this and uh, it upset him. And he started to, you know, reject, you know, the materialistic aspect of his life.
2: Another thing that sort of triggered this pulling away from his family is when he went on that trip between high school and college. From what I gathered from reading is that's when he went and visited some family, and got some of these blanks filled in over the overlapping yeah. children and the, you know, the two families, because he was quite young when it happened. He wouldn't necessarily remember it firsthand. And so he started some of these family secrets started unraveling to him, and he he was very upset. And I can understand that, I mean, his mom was the other woman in the situation, so I can understand if... Uh, an idealistic, moralistic 18-year-old could really have some, really, like a crisis of, you know, he was the product of this affair.
0: When we mentioned the abuse and his sister, I, in, in her book, in a documentary, Return to the Wild, she was, she stated that uh, once when the, her mother had, had, you know, the father had um, attacked their mother, Uh, Billy, uh, after the attack, she had apologized to the kids and and said, basically, I'm sorry, I got stuck with your father after when I got pregnant with Chris. So you can imagine the guilt that he must have been carrying around, you know, in uh, regards to that.
1: There was a lot of emotional abuse from both parents to those kids. Like, when, allegedly, when the father would, would say, try to choke the mother he would call the kids in and say look what your mother's made me do and then she would say look what your father is doing to me and then they would call family meetings and saying we're getting a divorce which parent are you living with and makes and made them choose between them
0: how awful and how cruel yeah to put put those kids in
1: yeah i think it's why chris as the older brother kind of took a parental protective role over corinne and try to take her under his wing and guide her because the parents obviously weren't doing what they should have been doing.
0: He would try to protect her. Yeah. And, and as we said, this, this occurred allegedly in both families and in both uh, Walt's relationships. So it was, uh, yeah. So uh, anyway, Chris was off to college in uh, Emory university. He graduated in 1990. I should say uh, during one of his breaks, he took his prize Datsun, and have you guys seen this car? It was such. Yeah. <laughs> it was, yeah, yeah. It was bright yellow. It was, <laughs> it was hilarious. So he takes his Datsun, he goes to um, during one of his breaks, and he drives all the way to Fairbanks, Alaska, for the first time. That was in 1989. Uh, he graduates from Emory University in 1990 with a 3.72 GPA. So he did very well. In college and his parents obviously were very proud of him, and they flew down for his graduation. And this was in uh, June of 1990, not knowing um, that, or May of 1990, not knowing that this was, you know, would be the last time they would ever see their son. They came down for graduation, Billy and Walt and Kareem. Um, they had uh, celebrated Chris's graduation. They offered to buy Chris a, a, a new car uh, for his graduation, but uh, Chris refused, and, you know, he said his, his Datsun was just fine. There is this, uh, you know, again, he, you can sense that he's starting to, again, reject support and help from his parents. And he said as much in his letters to Corrine, the, the letters that, she, uh, that she's released or she's publicized, He said pretty much that uh, he was going to let them think that he was going along with their plan. And their plan was for him to go to graduate school or law school and um, start a career. And he was going to let them think that that was going to happen. But uh, he was actually planning to divorce his family.
2: Yeah, and that's the word he used to divorce his parents.
0: Uh, So um, they had a celebration. Chris uh, takes... His parents and Corrine to the airport the day they leave. It was Mother's Day. He made a point to give his mother a Mother's Day card.
1: Yeah, he actually got her flowers and candy as well. I think that was his way of saying sort of goodbye to them. my last nice, nice, gesture.
2: Yeah, because two years previously he had told them he would never, he would no longer give or receive gifts, and his mom was touched that he had actually gotten her a gift for Mother's Day. And um, but also on the other hand his letter to his sister around that time said he was going to start playing along and try to trick them into thinking he was cooperating with them so i mean it could have been that except we'll talk about some of the people he met later but it seemed he held a tenderness for his mother even as he wasn't communicating with a lot of
1: people did say that
2: yeah
0: He told his parents he was going to disappear for a while, and they took that to mean that he was going to travel a bit like he had done before, before coming back and uh, deciding on a career path uh, or furthering his education. So the parents returned to their home in Virginia, uh, along with their daughter, Corrine. Chris remained in Atlanta. Uh, Soon after that, Chris starts his journey. The family, uh, the parents... Wait, and they send letters to chris
2: well he actually he had sent them a letter after they had gone back for graduation yeah it was
0: june i think june of 1990
2: yeah yeah in june they sent this letter but i don't know if you guys obviously if you read the book you read it but it was very mundane it was just his like report card and some normal like quick letter stuff there's really nothing saying goodbye or you know there's not even like a coded goodbye or something i mean it's completely a benign letter like it's no big deal and that i thought that was kind of i don't know i think i expected his last letter to his parents to have some kind of you know double meaning or something that we could extract in hindsight but there's really nothing
0: parents don't hear from chris they become concerned summer goes by they haven't heard from him so in august 1990 um, they decide to go in and go back down to Atlanta and check on him. And they are it, it is there that they learn that uh, Chris had moved out of his apartment. That he told his I believe he said he told his landlady that he was going to Florida or somewhere some somewhere bogus. Yes. It was it was it wasn't true. Um, so of course this is you know perplexes parents and sister so. They go back to Virginia in hopes of waiting for word from Chris. Some time goes by. They don't hear from him. They receive um, some letters that they had sent of both uh, the mother and, I believe, Corrine has sent Chris uh, during the summer, and they were returned uh, by the Postal Service. They found out later that Chris had made arrangements with um, the post office to hold all of his letters and send them like four or five weeks later, return them four or five weeks later. So they knew that he, you know, that he did that intentionally, that there was an, you know, that there was intent on his part to get a head start.
2: Yeah. And by this point he was gone for five weeks when they got that bundle of letters. Yeah. So that's quite the head start. Yep.
0: I just can't, you know, I just said, uh, uh, you know, cause I never, and you know, I just think I never communicate through letters anymore. So I, you know, it's time to put my mind back in the, Actually writing letters or posting <laughs> postcards sometimes, but so um, so Chris is uh, starting his journey. He had uh, and I've seen different amounts here. I don't know what you guys seen, but I seen he had twenty thousand dollars, I've seen he had twenty five thousand dollars in his college fund. I
2: think it was a little more than twenty four thousand. I think everyone's just estimating, but yeah, it was around, you know, twenty to twenty five thousand.
0: So Chris takes uh, writes a check to Oxfan, which is a organization that uh, works, you know, that's focused on ending world hunger. He makes a donation of the, his college fund, a remaining college fund of twenty or twenty five thousand, to Oxfan, and then he kind of hits the road in his Dodson, and he drives west. This is in July, uh, approximately July of nineteen ninety. Uh, while he was uh, in Uh, detrail wash i believe it is arizona
2: i think it's detrital
0: detrital okay uh arizona he was uh in his car sleeping in his car uh when there was a flash flood now chris was not injured in this flash flood but his poor Dotson bit the dust his engine wouldn't or at least the engine flooded
2: i read i think in um john cracker's book it says that he the engine got flooded and he killed the battery trying to start it, and if had he just waited, he probably could have gotten it but going. It would have started.
1: And I, and I think, yeah, he definitely was a risk-taker, and he loved adventure and being off on his own, and I think that age at that age, you, you don't think about the consequences of your actions, you just want to go full speed at everything. So this journey did happen at a t- uh, coincide in a time of his life, where he, you don't think about the future, you don't think about or if I leave my car, how am I going to get from A to B
2: sort of thing? And this seems just so foreign to me because at 22, I was married with two kids.
1: So oh, wow. Yeah.
2: We, we all have our own senses uh.
1: of adventure, right? You, you don't want to know what I was doing at 22. <laughs> oh, yes, we do. <laughs> That's for another episode.
0: <laughs> okay. The alley episode. <laughs> so Chris abandons his beloved Dachshund. And uh, he leaves a note on the car, that, and I'm quoting here. This piece of shit has been abandoned. Whoever can get it out of here can have it. Uh, Chris removed the license plates, and he buries them. He left a majority of his belongings in his car, including a guitar and a 25-pound bag of rice, an electric razor, and the keys to the car. The car would later be found by park rangers, And uh, they jump started it and uh, they used it actually as on for undercover work on drugs bust later on. But that's a cool side story. I like that.
2: I don't know if you guys had read this, but the guitar was actually a gift from Walt to Billy that he had given her when Chris was born 22 years before that she used to play him lullabies. Okay. Uh, that kind of stood out to me
1: and is is this around, is this around the time he also burnt all these the rest all these money
2: right yeah this was right before he burned the money wasn't it because he
1: took a picture yeah okay. what do you think he did that
0: i think it, his um first of all yeah the, the, he he took a lot of photos he was he took selfies before they were like the thing right he had a uh he had a camera and he had a timer on it so he took a lot of photos of himself and it's documented his journey um but yeah you're right one of the photos he took was him burning money i don't I, you know you, who knows if it was all the money he had in the world or it was he was just trying to make a statement but there was a photo of him burning money
2: i think he was just kind of He was having this moment where he lost his car, which was like his last tie to having ownership of something. So I think he impulsively burned all his money as his one last, I'm starting from scratch moment. And then went, oh shit, I better go find a job because I need money. (laughs) Because we, as we find out, he's not opposed to working for money when he needs it. So I think it was just a moment of
1: purging himself from all of his belongings and I think it yeah, definitely was just a symbol, symbolic token for him and that was his last step to distance himself from society. Um, and as you said, like I think that once he realised, well, how am I going to survive, that's when he started getting his jobs. But, I mean, I, I could think, as it's in one of his books, you just take what you need. So I think that's how he, re- he justified getting the jobs down the track. It was just... Taking, getting what he needed to survive.
0: Yeah, and it's you know, and I think it goes along with his uh whole you know outlook at that point in terms of you know ma- uh, materialism and you know wanting, like you said, to just kind of cut all ties and be totally independent. Well, he was. um It was just him and his backpack.
2: Well, he he had um. In this first month of being, quote, on his own, he ran out of food. And he, you know, living off the land without actually farming, it's very difficult. He did break into a cabin and steal food from people. So, you know, he wanted to be on his own. However, in the moment of desperation, he did break into somebody's cabin and steal their emergency food supplies. And he was also, he's also been characterized a little bit, and we'll get into this, I feel like this whole episode is foreshadowing. Well, we'll talk about this later. But no, he was kind of characterized as a freeloader a little bit. You know, he did work, but he was also eating a lot of food from other people. And he seemed hesitant to accept a big help, but he would take a lot of little help.
1: As I say, we'll get to this, as you said. But I mean, he really, really did rely on other people in their kindness. His journey was only possible because of the other people, like the ones he met. Yeah, uh, he, the, the I know that his whole adventure was his way of testing himself, but he couldn't have done it without the generosity of the strangers he met.
0: When we talk about his relationship he had with his parents and how strained that was, he seemed to take uh, he seemed to dev, uh, develop relationships pretty easily on the road, at least surface relationships.
2: He kept in contact with several of them. So, you know, he can make these relationships quickly and the people felt close to him. So I don't know. Yeah. I mean, maybe most of them were superficial, but a lot of them, I feel, were more than that.
1: Oh, definitely. The ones, um, we'll get to it, but the ones he had with Jen and Ronald, I think his name was, that was that was definitely a close relationship. But Ronald thought of him as a grandson. So it at least on one side... They, they were very close, and they did keep in touch throughout the journey.
0: Yeah, so in August of 1990, uh, after he burned his money, uh, Chris took a new name. He became Alex Supertramp.
2: This actually reminded me, I don't know if you've read the memoir Wild, but the author Cheryl Strayed, she went on a journey. She did this huge hike on the Pacific Crest Trail, but she changed her name. Strayed is not her Um, Name from birth, so she changed her name to Cheryl Strayed, and it really is kind of fitting to her life. Alex Supertramp is a little bit more heavy handed,
0: (laughs) yeah. It reminds me of the wasn't there like a 70s group called Supertramp or something? Yes, (laughs) there was. (laughs) Okay, good. I wasn't just imagining that horrible experience. Okay, so (laughs) I'm gonna, you know, I'll if I mention Chris or I mention Alex throughout this. It's the same guy. It's Chris, okay? So Alex, (laughs) as Chris, began keeping a journal documenting his travels. Uh, And a lot of times they were written in this melodramatic, third-person perspective. So with no car, no money, uh, Chris uh, took a job on a farm with a man who called himself Crazy Ernie. Which, you know, if someone offered me a job and her name (laughs) is Crazy Ernie, I'm probably not going to take it. But, you know, he was probably desperate at the time. Uh, but he t- soon turned, found out that Crazy Ernie was kind of going to rip him off. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, he was ripping off. Uh, if the name didn't give it away, uh, <laughs> he was ripping off other people. So Chris um, just uh, stole his bicycle and pedaled off.
1: Can we, can we discuss the reported cutting up or burning of his identification? Okay. I mean, I know it's widely dis- widely discussed that he did this, mm-hmm. but uh, I guess this is the problem with any case that doesn't have the actual person there to tell the story. But I did read in several articles that his wallet was found after they had found him deceased, and it had all his ID in there.
0: Uh, it was really weird. I, uh, there's a documentary uh, in which a-, a man is interviewed who went to the uh location where we'll talk about the bus where chris perishes
1: yeah will For- will forsberg or Fossberg.
0: yeah i believe that's and he found the um backpack and in the backpack was chris's wallet his id and three hundred dollars and the police had a time trying to identify him so i'm not sure you know
1: i mean it is, i guess it's always possible he got the he got the id back later on when he knew he may have- wanted to return to society at some point so he might have reapplied for it i mean who knows
2: yeah that is one of the inconsistencies in the reporting because i've i've seen that as well and also when they said they couldn't identify him but he signed his real name on the note that he left on the door so i'm really not entirely sure all the details on why it was hard to identify him but anyway
0: during this time, his parents, of course, are still searching for him. They hire a private detective. You know, they find out about the donation to Oxfam. The Chris got a hitchhiking ticket. I believe it was, was it in Arizona? They got some sort of summons about that. But really, that was the only, there wasn't a whole lot of information they were able to obtain about Chris's whereabouts. And it makes sense because he was moving around quite a bit. So around this time in August of 1990, he ends up in um, Northern California, and he's basically out on a a highway hitching a ride. Actually, I think he was sitting on a crate on a a highway hitching a ride. He was passively hitchhiking, I suppose. He got a ride from a woman named Jan Burris. Sounds right. And Jan was was known to be what was called a rubber tramp. Uh, which is really some uh, uh, someone who travels, uh, kind of a vagabond, but they do it in a car. That's why they're called rubber tramps. And um, she picked Chris up, and they instantly took a liking. She instantly took a liking to Chris. She had a son, a little younger than Chris. I think her son was eighteen, and he was off somewhere, and she had lost contact with him. So they developed this bond together. This kind of this kind of. Mother son bond, maybe that's going too far, but they were they were quite they become quite close. Even as I think you guys mentioned some of these relationships he developed on the road, he would stay in contact with these folks as he continued on in his journey, and which he did with um, with Jan. But they spent some time together. She fed him, as you mentioned. You know he would take uh, he was not opposed to taking help. She helped him out. She fed him. She took care of him a bit. They stayed together a bit. And then later on in his travels, he would send her postcards and then actually go visit her later on in uh, the slabs, which we'll talk about a bit later. So in September of 1990, Chris is hitchhiking in South Dakota, and he gets a ride from a man by the name of Wayne, Wayne Westerberg. They start talking, and they hit it off right away. And Wayne likes Alex or Chris so much that he offers him a job on his uh, on his farm to work in a grain elevator, and which his farm was in Carthage, South Dakota. Chris, who was in need of money again, uh, gratefully accepts the job, and he becomes one of Wayne's uh, hardest working employees. He would take on tasks that the other employees did not want to do, like. Um, cleaning out the grain elevators and where he had to get inside the grain elevators and uh, take out rats and i mean it was he would whatever was needed to be done chris was willing to do it he worked hard and while in Carthage, um some of his co-workers and wayne they they, they taught chris how to um how to hunt how to skin and how to preserve game because chris ultimately Uh, goal was to go back to alaska and and live in the wild and he wanted to he was always trying to learn and uh, learn new skills that will help him in his um his goal so chris uh become and wayne become close friends but wayne has some legal problems he was arrested um he was arrested for being involved in a, a scam to um scramble satellite signals is that what you guys got
2: Yeah, it's those black boxes, which um, older listeners may remember that you could basically steal cable or you could attach it and get all those premium cable channels that you don't want to pay for. And he was actually caught up in an FBI sting operation of this. And I guess of all the FBI sting operations, this wasn't such a bad one. I think he went to jail for like four months or something.
0: Man, I would hate to be in the cell and the guy asked me, what are you in for?"
2: <laughs> I stole cable.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That'd <laughs> be my luck. They make an example out of me. <laughs> so, when Wayne gets arrested, Alex decides he's going to go to Mexico. Or Chris. I'm going to say Alex and Chris. It's interchangeable. So, um, he heads south and it says in the notes that he sneaked across the border in a a uh, kayak. I've been to Mexico. There's not a lot of sneaking across the border; You basically <laughs> can walk. But uh, coming back is a different story. But As um, he found out. Yes, as he found out. But he, he tried to paddle in the go- uh, the Gulf Coast. Uh, it did not go as smoothly as he had imagined. You know, he was off on another great adventure, but he eventually uh, got to the, the coast uh, and he spent some time there exploring the water routes. In the area but uh, he eventually gave up that that adventure because he wasn't getting very far.
2: I think this is one of those moments he got to the coast because some Mexican fishermen took him there Mm -hmm. and I think this is one of those moments where everything ends up working out for him and I think there are a lot of those moments of everything working out for him that ends up falling apart when he gets to Alaska but um, this just, I think these moments just build his confidence that he's on the right path. Oh, definitely.
0: Yeah, that, um, you know, things will work out in the end. Uh, he returns to the U.S. Now, he tried to cross the Texas, Texas-Mexican border. He was, he was successful there. He was caught by the uh, authorities. Uh, he was, he was questioned. He... He had a handgun with him that they confiscated, but they they after you know hearing his story, they finally let him cross back over into the U.S. Mm-hmm. It might be a little bit more difficult today than it was then, but it
1: would be today. Yeah. Now
0: then he spent Chris spent some time in a homeless shelter in in Southern California. I want to say it's Los Angeles, but it may may have been San Diego uh, under the name of uh, Alexander Supertramp. So this is uh, in the winter of 1991. In the spring, in May, Chris uh, decides he uh, moves to Bullhead City, Arizona. Now, again, none of this, n- during none of this time he's having any contact with his family, his, his parents or his sister at this point. He arrives at Bullhead uh, City, Arizona, and um, wanting to take a break from the road, he, he stays in an abandoned trailer and takes a job as a cook, at a local McDonald's
1: it's interesting here that um, for this job he used his real name and real social security number I'm not sure if his parents still had the private investigator but he was living life very dangerously and risking getting caught using his real details maybe he just thought his parents didn't care and wasn't looking for him or or maybe he wanted them to someone to know where he was. You don't know. Yeah,
2: or he was gone long enough that, like you say, he's just kind of getting a little complacent, or he really needed the money bad enough, and McDonald's having a corporate, you can't... What did he write on the the filing with Wayne? He wrote exempt on everything. He wouldn't give his social security number. And when you're working for, like, a small farm guy, you can do that, but McDonald's wouldn't have hired him without the information mm-hmm. checking out, and so my my guess is it was desperation and complacency kind of put together. Yeah, I
1: don't think Wayne or crazy Ernie would have worried that much about not having social security. numbers.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. So um, Chris um, stays some time off the road there in early or in the summer of 1991. And he sends a postcard. Uh, after a few months, he sends a postcard to Jan Burris, the lady he met and developed a relationship, friendship with in California. And she was excited to hear from him. And actually, she was making, uh, uh, want to make plans to come visit him in Arizona. But at that point, he was getting ready to get back on the road. He was getting impatient, and he was, you know, tired of working at McDonald's and was ready to get back on with his travels. So instead, he went to visit Jan,
1: Back to the story about McDonald's, um, a little of this story is funny, but I did have a chuckle when I read that um, he had trouble at the McDonald's job because he didn't want to wear shoes. And then when he finally did agree to wear shoes, um, he didn't want to wear socks. So I thought that was a bit funny. But
2: That's actually my only note on this about his job at McDonald's is apparently he hated yep. wearing socks and was like forced yep. to. It's just an odd quirk. I feel these kind of quirks kind of humanize him for me, so they, they stick out.
0: It, it's a, you know, again, I think it's a, a little being nonconformist. It, even, you know, if i got to work at McDonald's and, you know, if I have to do this and, and earn money, you know, at least let, let me, you know, be a little bit nonconformist by not wearing socks.
1: I also found it interesting that some of his fellow workers complained to his manager that he didn't, Chris Alex didn't smell very nice. I mean... It probably was difficult to have regular showers living in a banded trailer. I imagine there wouldn't have been running water or anything. And that when the manager spoke to Chris, um, Chris got very defensive about his situation and didn't, didn't want anyone to know that he was homeless.
2: Yeah, that was, that stuck out as well that he was, I don't know, is this a remnant from his childhood of keeping up appearances or was he really trying to blend in or see if he... Maybe he was really just trying to see if he could fit in again because he didn't fit in before and now maybe he's trying to give it another chance and then he realizes it's just not working. Because
1: by this point, how how long had he been on his travels?
2: This was about a year,
1: right? A year and a year and a half, yeah?
0: Yeah, this was May of 1991 when he um, started the job and so he would have been a year on the road, but almost a year.
1: Yeah. So it's been a long time since he's been sort of an active part in society.
0: Mm-hmm. So anyway, he uh, reaches out, he sends a postcard, he makes contact again with Jan. Uh, she wants to come see him. He says, no, you know, I'll come see you instead. And she, he meets up with Jan and her boyfriend at a place called the Slabs, which is a abandoned Navy air base in California. And it is, out in the deserts, and it's a hub for you know travelers, backpackers, tramps, just anyone traveling around. Uh, especially in the winter time, not so much in the summertime because it's too hot. Uh, this was 1991. People still go there today. I have a friend who goes out there every winter. She's kind of this um, you know old hippie type and she goes out there and uh, and to avoid the ohio winters and hangs out with all these um drifters and backpackers and such at the at the slabs and...
2: i looked up pictures of the slabs and i was actually surprised i didn't expect it to be colorful it's painted in these bright colors and not just like crappy graffiti but really you know, people really took care to do this. And I guess I just kind of imagined it as I was reading as this really drab homeless camp with, you know, big barrels mm-hmm. with fires yep. in them. And it's not, it looks nothing like that. So I recommend that people go out and look for pictures.
0: Jan had a stand that, you know, she people had different little businesses there and she was, it was like a, you know, there's like flea markets and she sold mostly books. And so Chris helped her out with her stand while he planned his great Alaskan Odyssey, um, he read books on plant life and what he could eat out in the wild. Jan, you know, she urged Chris to contact his parents. She urged him to call his mother. She could tell that she said that she could sense that he, Chris had a bad relationship with his father, that there was some tension there. But uh, she encouraged Chris to contact her, his. Mother, but Chris, uh, you know, he would just change the subject or whatever whenever she would mention it. She was also became very concerned about Chris's plan to head to Alaska and live in the wild because she was afraid that um, he would not be prepared for for that adventure. Telling him, "quote Alaska will kick your butt." She made him promise that if he needed anything, that he would uh, contact her. And eventually, after spending some time with Jan and her boyfriend there in the slabs, Chris decided to make his way north so that he can move move toward his goal of Alaska. This was in early 1992 now. We're in January 1992. En route to Alaska, Chris stopped back in Carthage, uh, South Dakota, where his friend Wayne lived. But before he... Um, got there, he was in Salton City, California, en route and he was hitchhiking when he was picked up by a man by the name of Ronald Franz Ronald Franz was 80 years old, and again Chris and the stranger bonded instantly and Chris decided to hang around with uh, Ronald Franz and get to know him better before making his trip up to see Wayne and then further up into Alaska Franz had, uh, as I said, he was 80 years old. He had no relatives of his own. And he treated Chris kind of like a grandson.
2: I don't know if you're going to talk about Franz's family, but his wife and only child were killed in a car accident in 1957. He was stationed overseas at the time. His son was almost graduating from medical school when he died. So seeing Chris as a grandson really fits into this whole thing, and it was probably a way to start healing. I think it's
0: interesting that the these almost proxy relationships that Chris develops, you have Jan, who served almost as a surrogate mother as uh, that relationship. You have the relationship with Wayne that is almost like a, a father-son relationship. And then you have the relationship with uh, Franz, which is now like a, a grandfather-grandson type of relationship. And it seemed like it was mutual. I mean, it wasn't just Chris latching on to these folks. These folks generally liked Chris and and cared about him.
2: And I think Franz kind of stood out to me as being particularly affected by Chris's later death when he found out about it. And really, you know, it actually caused him to kind of change his own life at 80 years old based on what chris had advised him to do with his life and i mean it's just a really i think Franz's story
1: stands out to me in this this part of the story is the most heartbreaking for me Um, the fact that ronald asked chris if he could adopt him and then ronald sold everything out up and went and lived a minimalist lifestyle like chris told him to do and i could only imagine how ronald felt when he found out that chris died
2: and he found out just he found out didn't he didn't he pick up two yeah. hitchhikers or something? And they're like, oh, did you hear about that guy that died in Alaska? And his ears perked
1: up, and that's how he found out. I mean, Ronald had already lost his wife and only child. And now to lose someone else that you thought of as a grandson, it would have been heartbreaking.
0: Yeah, he definitely didn't, you know, he definitely didn't want Chris to go. But, you know, Chris, again, uh, after spending some a uh, few months with friends in March of 1992, decided it was time for him to, again, move closer to his goal to Alaska. Um, Grant France drove him as far as Grand Junction, Colorado, uh, from California. I'm not sure how far that is, but it seems like it's pretty, it would be a pretty good distance. And three days later, Chris arrived in Carthage to resume work for Wayne, who is now uh, released after serving a short sentence uh, so he's back with Wayne, uh, this guy he developed a relationship, worked for, had this father-son type of relationship with, and he was earning some money again, and this time he was earning money so that he could buy some supplies to make his, fi- trip for his final preparations to for Alaska. Wayne was also concerned about Chris's, uh, next adventure, He offered to buy Chris an airline ticket to Fairbanks so Chris would not have to um, hitchhike his way all the way to Alaska from South Dakota, which is uh, quite a trick. But, you know, as you mentioned, Allie, Chris always wanted to take the hard way. It wasn't an adventure unless he did it the hard way. And Chris refused the airline ticket, and on uh, April 25th, 1992, after 10 very difficult days of hitchhiking, uh, r- rides were very difficult to come by, apparently, Chris arrived in Fairbanks. He bought some supplies, some rice. Uh, he had a, a rifle, uh, some ammunition, a uh, backpack, his book on plants. But you know, not not a whole lot in way of other supplies. You guys remember any other supplies he took? I'm going to leave him in anything out.
1: So now the map or lack of map issue. Yes. In the Into the Wild book, it says that Chris went to Alaska without a map or a, a compass, but I found a list of possessions that were returned to Chris's family from the coroner's office and a map was listed. Now, what map that is, is unknown, I guess, but And so it might mean nothing at all, but you can't help but think if he was only carrying possessions that he needed, why would he keep a map for a town that you're no longer in?
2: It may have been a a larger map, like a map of North America, so he knew which cities to go to to get to the next city he needed, because he was planning on coming back out. And that's interesting. I didn't catch that the coroner's item list had a map on it, so that was a good catch. I'd like to know what kind of map, because... The idea is he didn't have a map of Denali Park.
0: That, that is a key point. And, and a lot of Chris's critics, would uh, that was one of the things they pointed out. He wasn't prepared, and they used that as an example, that he didn't have a, 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 a map of that area.
2: And what's interesting is it's it is a sign of not being prepared, but since yeah. he did it on purpose, then it's not necessarily a sign of not being prepared. It's a sign of doing it differently
0: you know, the world is a small place now and it was maybe not as small back in 1992, but you know, there were there was no, like, no places on the map that has not been, you know found or discovered but if if he didn't have a map then wherever he was he was going someplace in the wild, and as we'll talk about he really, I mean, he hiked uh, I think four days to get to his destination, so it wasn't like he was in the middle of Siberia. He, you know, he wasn't that far from civilization. Yeah.
1: No, I think he was only like 30 miles away from Healy in the end.
2: Yeah, he was really close miles? to that. Not, he, I mean, on foot, not really close, but in the grand scheme yeah. of things, pretty close to that neighboring city.
0: Um, he was hitched a ride with a gentleman named Jim Galen, I believe. And he took um, Chris all the way to for Fairbanks to the Stampede Trail, which is a trail that it's an old miners trail that Chris intended to explore. Galen was concerned because he didn't feel Chris had the adequate supplies he needed to survive in the wild. Chris had told him of his plan.
2: Yeah, he tried to talk Chris out of it every which way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He really encouraged Chris to rethink it, to you know, to get at least get some more supplies. He offered, I believe, he offered to buying some supplies. And in the end, again, Chris refused it, and he said, you know, he was he thought that he was adequately prepared to survive. and and, and had things turned out differently, maybe he was, depending upon how long he plan to um you know how long he had planned to stay but um he he had minimal supplies that's for sure at least for uh, he didn't have adequate supplies for the amount of time he would be out in the wild
2: which ended up being about like 40 days longer than he planned
0: that's right. Yeah, because I think he was in a total what 100, like 112 days. Is that 112?
2: Yeah, and he had tried to turn around on like day 67. He was
0: yeah when he tried to when it, when he decided to leave on May 1st, 1992. Uh, after hiking, he uh, crossed the. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing this right. Teklaniki. Is that right? You guys in the uh, river? No.
1: Uh,
2: seeing as this is your... S- this is your script. I didn't actually look up the pronunciation, but um, sure, okay,
0: <laughs> we'll go with that. Okay, we'll go with that. Anyway, the, it, this was spring, or yeah, it was spring, and uh, the the river was knee deep at the time. Chris was able to walk across it, with, you know, get across it, without too much difficulty, and he arrived on the trail. He found an old abandoned city bus. I've seen that, and that tells me you're not too far out of civilization if you find a city bus, yeah,
2: the bus was um old from when they were putting in roads from a long time ago. Yeah, I think it had
0: been there, yeah, I think it had been there since like nineteen sixty one I think I read, but anyway, it was a uh, abandoned bus uh that were you that was used from time to time by uh miners or by uh hunters to you know we use it to as shelter. And Chris called it the Magic Bus. He found it, and he entered a note in his journal on that day that he found it and called it the Magic Bus. And this is where he would kind of set up camp to start his adventure. And so this was in May and June of 1992. He explored the Stampede Trail, and I've read in a couple of places where he his goal was, like, to walk to the Bering Strait which I don't know how far that was from this location, but he found soon found that you know the Stampede Trail what proved to be impassable after a while. So he kind of made that the magic bus his uh, base of operations. So he, th- this is where he kind of set up camp.
1: So and I did read uh, I I did read in several articles I think it might have been around this time that and it was speculated that. Chris was responsible of ventilizing several cabins in the area I think that might have gone back to what you were talking about earlier Charlie
2: yeah um, this that... is um this is a different set of cabins yeah but I had also read that there were cabins that were um ransacked and vandalized yeah and then some people saying well he probably wouldn't have vandalized them like he would have taken the stuff but he wouldn't have destroyed them so maybe it wasn't him but he was in the area at the time and he had broken into cabin before so yeah you know we don't know he he didn't put it in his journal and that's all we really have to go on right now
1: did he put the other one in his journal though
2: i'll guess not you know, I would actually have to double-check my source. It was a op-ed piece that I saw that talked about it. But yeah, I don't actually know how the guy knew it was him, unless he wrote it in his journal. Because he wasn't Cause the, arrested for it.
1: Because the park rangers come out in Alaska and said that Chris isn't a suspect of these vandalizations. So that they don't think he has done it, so...
0: Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, there was speculations that it may have just been bears, but there were some things that were done that bears wouldn't have done.
2: Right, and honestly, if one person broke in and stole food, it would be easy for a passing ne'er do well to walk in and vandalize. You know, so it could have. Sure. So who
0: knows? Yeah. Chris is keeping a journal all during this time that he's at the bus, the magic bus, and a significant point is on june 9th he actually shot a moose and the moose was, it was was small for a moose but it weighed about 600 pounds
1: yeah small for a moose is huge and considering the kind of gun he had it was a pretty good job what he did the kind of gun he had was more like yeah. a pea shooter type thing it was right it was like a big you know proper hunting rifle
0: now chris and you know he had thought he had learned the skills of preserving meat, and he tried to preserve this uh, meat from this moose by uh, smoking it. But after three days, uh, the moose the meat was uh, full of maggots.. <laughs> this
2: is one of those things where he took this idea, oh, if you smoke the meat, it preserves it, but didn't actually figure mm-hmm. out how you're supposed to do that. I mean, you don't just put it over smoke. There's a lot more to preserving a large animal like that
0: you know had he been successful at that um this story may have turned out differently quite differently it may have t- changed everything so this but the fact that he killed this moose and could not use it um really seemed to uh, demoralize him um he wrote in his journal that he had wished, you know, after his experience, he had wished that he had never shot the moose. And it was one of the greatest tragedies of his life. Now, again, being a little melodramatic, maybe. But it seemed to really bother him that he killed this animal and was not able to use it for um, subsistence. So.
2: Right. It was a complete waste.
0: Yeah, especially since he
1: believed that you only take what you need. So all this meat was going to waste. And as like I said, he might have been he might have been running short of rice at that time, and there mightn't have been as much game around, so it would have hurt so much with all that meat going to waste, and what that meat would have meant for his health and survival later on.
0: Sure. So uh, after about two months in Alaska, uh, Chris decides to come back to civilization. We walked back on the trail. He got back to the river. And he found, he was shocked to find that the, what had been a river that was pretty easy to cross when he arrived was now uh, churning with rapids. It had swollen uh, from the melted water from glaciers, had flooded it, so it was impassable. So the, he was stuck on the wrong side of the river at this yeah, point. Yeah, it would have
2: been like chest high and moving very quickly, which is really dangerous to cross. And is weird to me though is there's no signs that he did anything else to try to get out he didn't say I hiked half a mile and found the cable car that'll take me over the river which is what he could (sighs) have done he didn't go up on a high hill and light a fire he didn't I don't know it doesn't feel like he really I don't think he had a death wish I think he thought someone was someone or something would come in and save him or something would work out but I just don't understand why he didn't. There's no evidence that he tried anything else to get
1: out. That, that part is so frustrating to me. Like the, the cable crossing was only about a half a mile down the stream. And he could have, if he took a flare gun with him or if he told someone, he said started a fire, he could have alerted someone that he was in trouble and he needed help.
2: Yeah, and the crazy thing with the cable car is I read that it's usually on the other side of the, of the river and chained up, but it had recently been used, so it was on his side. <sighs> Like it was it like it... that is his miracle, and it just was still out of his reach a little.
0: Yeah, it was like, like a it was like a half, well, like half yeah, a half mile, right? Yeah. And
2: certainly less than he walked on an average day.
0: Yeah, you would think that just by out being out foraging uh, food in that area, he would ru- have run you know ran into it. Yeah, very odd. And I don't know if the if uh, you could buy a detailed map, a map would be so detailed that it would have that on well, it. Well, there was
2: a gauge station right there that you know they used to, you know, scientists go to and stuff. I don't know if that was currently in use, but that would have been on the map. So if that was on the map, he would have maybe saw, oh, there's a structure. I should go look into it, and then he would have found the cable car. I think Denali's pretty well mapped, so I would think it would be on there.
0: It's a, again just another uh, series of some uh you know of a missed opportunity to get out of this situation.
2: he'd been so lucky up till the last that's it
0: luck right now uh with the water being you know the river being impassable uh he decides to um go back to the bus and kind of wait until you know maybe the ice is fun done melting and it would be you know wouldn't be as uh dangerous to pass the river but you know, as you mentioned, he is—he uh, was running out of supplies. He was running out of the rice that he had brought in. You know, he was using up a lot of calories going around looking, foraging for food. Uh, you know, he survived on squirrel meat, on uh, woodpeckers and frogs, but not, he was not getting the calories he needed.
2: And he wasn't starting out in a great place because he was eating a lot of that rice and then a lot of lean game birds. And, I mean, rice has like 200 calories per cup, but, like, no fat. Mm -hmm. Lean game birds have very little fat. So, I mean, his macronutrients here are totally out of balance. Even before his supplies ran out, he was probably on the starvation path.
1: I would have said he, he would have been almost underweight when he arrived to Alaska, from what I've read.
2: None of the pictures of him make him look like he had any had very he had very little body fat starting
0: that's right yeah even even when he was i mean even growing up the pictures of my grandma he was always a a thinner, too healthy he wasn't carrying any extra weight that's for sure he ate many of the wild you know wild plants and vegetables that he could find but he was he again he was documenting this in his journal and he was also taking these photos these self-photos and he was looking, you know, pretty gaunt, kind of sh- just trying to survive day to day, but he was not getting enough calories.
2: Now, and if you think about living off the land is not that easy when you're not farming. And even early humans hunted and gathered in groups because one person would expend so much energy getting only their calories that they wouldn't be able to survive.
0: I don't watch a lot of TV, but I do like documentaries on people living in uh, Alaska or living in... And you find the the thing that always strikes me whenever I'm watching or reading books about it is, you would think there's abundance of of game, and it's just and, and maybe they are. It's just it's not easy to, you know, it's not easy to the to survive uh, on a subsistence type of uh, you know subsistence type of situation. So
2: Alaska has a very short growing season, so even the animals there are not going to be as big and fat as you might find in a more temperate climate
0: chris is in trouble things are not looking good uh he decides to write a note and leave at the on the bus while he goes out looking foraging for food Uh, and i'm not going to read the 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 sign but it basically says he put a sign to let people know if anyone would come along that he was near death it was serious that uh, to please remain if they come on the bus, to please remain until he returns so that they could help him get out of there. Um, so he was getting panicky at this point.
1: Can we just discuss this note? Because do you, he, mentions, he mentions an injury on the note. And it, I've looked in so many places and I can't find a plausible explanation for it.
2: No, his autopsy showed no injury. That's it. And
1: people are saying, you know, could he have made it up? Which to me seems out of character for him. Um and then some other people say it may have been a legal laceration of some kind. But as you said nothing straight up on the autopsy.
0: The way I viewed it is that he may have uh overdramatized it just to make sure he got the folks' attention so that if they come along and found that, you know, oh okay, we got someone injured here, we better you know, we better stick around that this is serious.
2: Yeah, he was there for almost th- his body was there for almost three weeks before anyone found him so I don't know what kind of injuries would just not be that noticeable on a body after so I mean he had no broken bones or any like torn muscles that they could see but if he had I don't know tendinitis would that have
1: even shown because I have a theory Um, if you if you if I sneakily sneak ahead to the supposed last photo um, do either of you think he looks injured in this photo one where he's against the bus
2: Oh, the one where he's against the bus. I'm thinking of the one where he's holding the sign. No,
1: no, no. Because to this one, if you something looks a bit off. If you look at the arms, um, where mm. his right arm looks like it's not in the shirt. I'll put it on the Facebook page so everyone can go oh. and have a look.
2: But maybe it's, like, dislocated. I, I was
1: thinking maybe he might have fallen and injured his shoulder. Um, and that could have been the injury. So it wasn't a serious enough where it was broken, but it was bad enough where he couldn't swim but still right. So he could have had sort of a, sort of a slight joint separation because those kind of injuries sort of he- start healing straight away and the basic functioning returns in a couple of days. So that's it mightn't have turned up in the autumn. Oh, yeah.
2: Okay, I'm looking at the picture right now and the sleeve does look flat, like the yes. arm's not in it.
1: So, I mean, it could be a trick of the light. But I can't unsee why I've seen now. So I think everyone can tell us what they think. But yeah, to me, it looks like his arm's not in the sleeve. Bum, bum, bum.
0: I just, I just kind of took it as, you know, I'm just trying to go I'm going to make this as, seem as dire as it really is. And when you think about it, he's starving to death. So, I mean, you know, um, you, you want to make sure you got the folks' attention. Uh, but anyway, the, uh, he continues to write in his journal up to the tragic end. He takes so, he takes one last photo, and it's it's kind of heartbreaking. And leaves a final note, a self portrait. Uh, you see by the picture, and I think it's when you're talking about Allie, where he's an, uh, he's, a, he's a he's a with the bus yeah, in the background. Yeah, yeah. And he leaves a note that says, "Quote: I've had a happy life." and thank the Lord, goodbye, and may God bless all, unquote.
1: Oh, Got shivers.
0: Chris died uh, after day 112 in the wild on August 18, 1992. It would be 19 days later uh, before some moose hunters converged at the bus and discovered um, something, and they saw the bus and they uh, discovered an odor, they thought it might have been just a dead animal, but uh, they saw the backpack. And when they opened the backpack, of course, that's when they found the remains of Chris McCandless, who was dead at the age of 24. He was in the,
2: the sleeping bag. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah,
0: sleeping bag, not the backpack. Yeah.
2: Here's the thing with this is he's there for 112 days in the wilderness without seeing a single person. And on one day, six people in different groups oh, nice. show up. Like on one, it yeah, everything, like we said, goes his way until he gets to the wild. When he wrote in his journal about getting sick and starving and that he wrote um, Pot Seed's Fault. Yes. Do we want to discuss that?
1: That was the June 30 entry. It's an extremely weak, weak fault of Pot Seed, much trouble in standing up, starving in great jeopardy.
0: There's just, I don't know, the people view Chris McCandless in different ways. Some view him as being idealistic, uh, as being uh, nonconformist, an adventurer who's just living his life and, you know, in a very non uh, materialistic way. Others view him as being uh, uh, taking unnecessary risk, of not being prepared. So when John Krakauer wrote his book, he took the stance, it was his view that Chris may have died, not due to any fault of his own, but due to the fact that he was eating uh, these potato seeds that were covered in a protective alkaloid, and I am far from being a botanist, so you guys jump in anytime. And that these were poisonous and he Chris would have no way of knowing that these were these seeds were poisonous. And that that if it didn't cause his death, it certainly uh, made his uh, situation much more dire, that it uh, causes could cause some paralysis. Yeah. And his field his field guy that he had with him wouldn't
1: have told him this because at this time they didn't know no one knew the seeds were were harmful
2: they sent them to be tested and they didn't find what John Krakauer first theorized was the cause of his problems so they've looked into it more and maybe he was eating a different plant that looks like this plant and that even you know unless you're a specialist you're not going to be able to tell them apart i mean a lot of people because he said it's the potato seeds fault is why we're going down the path of the potato seeds but I wonder if his body just didn't just hit its end point, and it happened to be when he was eating po- those potato seeds, and had he eaten a squirrel that day, he would have been like, oh, it's the squirrel's fault.
0: I'm yeah. getting more sick. Yeah.
2: I think it may just, the potato seeds just might be a coincidence.
0: You get these different camps, and, and people really, I think, get hung up on how he died as to whether or not to, you know, kind of see how... how they judge him is based upon how he died, which I think is, you know, nonsensical to me. But we mention this because, you you know, if you go out on forums and things and read, I mean, there's great debate over what killed him, you know. Like you said, Charlie, you know, it could be he just, you know, it was just too late, no matter what would have happened, no matter what he would have ate. I think the far more interesting question to me is, why did he take this journey in the first place? And yeah. we kind of alluded to some of the family issues, but what do you guys think? What, what do you think that?
1: Just to finish up on, you know, what killed him, just so we can end it. Um, I read that I read the report by the medical examiner who conducted the autopsy, and um, he he decided that look, he didn't believe that Chris was poisoned, and he simply starved to death. That so was I mean. It was probably most likely to be uh, something called rabbit starvation, where um, in a diet where you over rely on nutrition, on lean gain, or you're just eating roots or plants. That's what the medical examiner had decided at the end. So yeah, take that as you will.
2: That's really how I follow. And one of the things before he died, when he put that note about, you know, SOS, I'm out gathering berries. Did you guys notice that he signed his name and not Alex Yep, yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah, it was Chris and I,
2: I think he didn't want to die as a John Doe. I really think he wrote, cause he wrote Chris McCandless and then he underlined it.
0: Uh, maybe at, at some point he's decided, okay, you know, it's time to transition back now. I'm, you know, I, I've had this experience and, you know, we know he was going to leave the area. We know he was going to, uh, his plan was to walk out and he had mentioned, he had told, you know, maybe it was time that he was coming. He was going to be Chris again.
1: Looking at his last couple of diary entries, he did mention that he was lonely and he missed people. So it could have been, he, he was ready to go back. He wanted to be Chris again.
2: And his mom, I mean, of course it's comforting to her, but his mom very much believes that he was trying to get back home.
0: And I think he, he said uh, it, something, there was some quote about happiness is yet to be happy. Oh. You have to share.
1: Happiness is only real when shared. Yeah. I love that.
0: So maybe, you know, he came to this realization you know, and maybe he was just lonely or scared or whatever, but maybe it was a life turning event. You could certainly see how it would be. We've talked a little bit about the family situation. So I just wanted to get your guys' point of view of what makes a 22-year-old decide that they're going to uh, walk away from a relatively comfortable middle-class life and uh, break off contact with her family and go on this great adventure.
1: Well, as I said at the, the top of the episode, I think that it was just Chris's nature. I think even if he had the happiest home life, he was always destined to take a trip like this. Would it have ended the same way? I don't know. But I think that yeah, he was always – he liked the, the risk-taking and the adventure and doing things the hard way and not knowing where he was going. So I, I – yeah. Yeah. I think that he was always going to do something like that. If his
2: relationship with his parents had um, preserved into his adulthood, he probably wouldn't have died because they would have known where he was or they would have known when he was supposed to get back. I I think some of that is just from cutting off his parents and everyone else did change the outcome. But I don't think they drove him necessarily to take these adventures, but maybe he would have gone skydiving in a controlled environment. Maybe he would have climbed Mount Everest with a expert alongside him. Maybe he wouldn't have felt the need to be so alone in his adventures.
1: Corrine always talks about how close her and Chris were, and they obviously confided in each other a lot. So if, if they were that close, why couldn't he have told her? How, why couldn't he have trusted her to keep where he was going a secret, if they were that close, if they confided that much in each other.
0: I, I find that interesting too, Ali, uh, because you hear about how close they were, and I, I, I believe they were close, but he cut her out of his life too. I mean, he cut... And the, the, the assumption is he cut her out of his life because... He didn't want the parents to be able to track him down, but being as transient as he was, you know, he, he could have easily uh, dropped a, a postcard to her in one location, knowing that he was going to be five hundred miles away. You know, in a couple by the time she received it. Definitely.
2: Oh, I just feel their their roles in their relationship weren't equal. He was not. I don't want to say over her, but he was the protector. He was the caregiver. And so I think he didn't really think he needed to do that, that she was, I mean, if he was 22, she was 18, probably going away to college, she was out of the dangerous environment. So she didn't need him, so he left. And I don't think he really thought about it from the other perspective of he needed her. Also, Wayne said that he didn't like to be asked about his past. So if he was trying to leave his past behind, he didn't want to confide in her anymore he didn't need her anymore. He may not have thought she needed him and thought it was, it was just better this way, you know, that he'd be safer from the parents finding him. Not. She could move on. He didn't think he was not coming back.
0: Yeah, in the book in, Into the Wild, a lot of this, the, the family relationships, you, you kind of have to read between the lines. It, there was not a lot of detail in that, and Corrine uh, had told John Krakauer about this relation these relationships, but he had a promise to keep that she didn't want to embarrass her parents she didn't want to hurt her parents and you can obviously understand that by talking about the abuse but and she later um has released um some of Chris's letters and she has told Chris's story her and her sisters her half sisters have went to to the bus. The bus is a big, uh, attraction to backpackers and young folks and, well, I guess folks of all ages from all over the world continue to go there. I've read where Alaska, the state, was thinking about removing the bus, uh, because they don't...
1: I heard they had.
0: I heard, I read that they had. I heard they actually had. I read that they had, and then I've read that they actually, it was actually still there. So, I don't know. Oh, okay. I don't know, because I was going to mention that, um... But I had also read that actually you can still go there, so I don't know. So if anyone knows, let us know. Um but um people have made it sort of a monument to to Chris and they people go there and leave messages and and I think I said I I've, I've heard it I've read somewhere that people see in the Chris kind of what they want to see or they see parts of themselves in what he did. So an interesting story. Um
2: yeah, I think, for me, the mystery of Chris McCandless is kind of like the Maura Murray mystery. Why is it drawing people in? Why does it making... I, I, <laughs> Allie's giving way. me a look for mentioning Maura Murray. But, yeah, that um that attracts the trolls. But um, every podcast needs a good troll story. <laughs> but what it really... I think the... The thing is, why are people so concerned with what someone else did with his life? And I think people are judging him harshly because he broke rules. People don't... I mean, if you read some of the stuff people say about Cheryl Strayed, who survived her hike, they say a lot of the same things. Chris gave away a ton of money when there are people who would kill for twenty k to go back to school, and he refused a career. He did all these things that... He was an upper middle class person and he decided to live as a homeless person. I think we're really torn on, you know, the difference between like we have our ideals, but we want people to stay rooted in reality. And I think boiling Chris down to something as simple as was he good or bad? Was he right or wrong? Is completely missing the point. Yeah,
0: yeah, I agree.
2: He you know, he he can be brave and entitled exactly. and smart and unprepared. He can be all of these things because he was a complex person.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. I think he, he was all those things. And as you said, why, you know, why is this story still resonating? I mean, it's been 20 years now.
2: Yeah, and I feel like if we idolize him or demonize him, we're like dehumanizing him because we're taking away elements of him. But I also just want to be clear that I don't want to demonize his parents either, because it's very clear they're very sad. They loved him very much, and they are completely heartbroken that it went this path. They loved their kids how they could love them, and it wasn't perfect. But they, I mean, I don't want it to be like, well, they drove him to the wilderness and they're terrible people. That's what that, on the record, (laughs)
0: I said I, th- I think he would have
2: done it
1: anyway.
0: If you see the if you see their interview you can see, you know, the pain in their face. They, I I cannot, you know, I don't have children. I cannot imagine how how difficult it would be to lose a child. But you know they 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 stalked that boss for years after this happened with supplies in the event that uh, uh, the family, did the parents did, in the event that, you know, someone else would find themselves in uh, the situation that Chris found himself in. So, uh, Ali, where can people find us?
1: You, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, just search us. Um, if you do listen to us on iTunes, please rate, review, subscribe. We love Fives. We're on Instagram at InsightPod. Um, our email is insightfulpod at gmail.com. Um, what's the Twitter, Charlie?
2: Twitter is InsightfulPod. And Facebook. Facebook.
1: Facebook, Facebook is us... Insights to Words. There's some great conversations going on there.
2: Yeah, we read and respond to as many comments as we can and any emails. We also like... St- we like show suggestions because we like to do the shows that you want to hear. We all have our own very long lists, but it helps us narrow down topics when someone says, I'd like to hear this topic. So, and you could get in on the ground floor because we're starting to build our listener request list. So, you're more likely to get it in now.
1: <laughs> and it's some really good one so far.
2: We do. We, yes. And thank you to everyone who suggested something because I'm pretty sure we're probably going to get to all of them. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, any final words, ladies?
1: I guess my final thought and what I'd like to leave everyone with was, I mean, the real point of the story isn't what killed Chris or the fact that he was ill equipped and it's not about Alaska. I mean, I think this story could have been written even if Chris had survived and came out, you know, 20 pounds heavier, I think the story is more about sort of society as a whole, like materialism, um, that sort of thing. And I think it's about the yearning to challenge yourself and discover yourself. So everyone out there, you know, take that trip, take that risk, start a podcast, live your life.
2: Yeah, what Ali said.
0: Yes, exactly. Okay, uh, thank you all, all for listening, and please uh, follow us and um, listen in next time. Bye, everyone.
1: All right. Thanks. Bye.